When we think of city governments, it's hard not to shake the specter of unending bureaucracy. How much time do we city dwellers spend in long lines at City Hall with forms galore? Well, believe it or not, there may be an answer to all that thanks in large part to technologies that give us the means to build better municipal governments, ones that are actually responsive to their citizens' needs. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we're joined by HKS professor Stephen Goldsmith, who spent eight years as mayor of Indianapolis and later served as deputy mayor for operations in New York City during Michael Bloomberg's administration. He currently directs the Data Smart City Solutions Project out of the Kennedy School's Ash Center. Professor Goldsmith, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. So in your book, The Responsive City, that you co-wrote with uh, past PolicyCast guest Susan Crawford, um, you wrote that this is a critical juncture uh, for cities. What about this moment in time is so unique? Well, you can look at it at both the good news and the bad news. The bad news is there's just a lot of demands. More people want to live in cities. The, the press for services is greater than it's ever been before. And so there's a stretching of the need for certain resources and and the public's appetite for public goods exceeds the ability of government to produce them. On the good side, the technology tools are greater than we've ever seen before. A wholesale change in what we can do with social media, cloud computing, uh, ubiquitous mobility in terms of kind of handheld devices, uh, data science and, and, and data mining, predictive analytics. Just in the last two or three years alone, uh, dramatic uh, changes in the tools that are available to solve public problems. It seems like there are several different ways that these technologies can influence governments. Um, some of them are using the data that's coming from, you know, information that's being gleaned from from citizens. Other parts of it are the citizens being able to interact with the governments in new ways. What what is there more important? Uh, or is there a hierarchy? hierarchy yeah. <laughs> well, excuse me. Um, no, yes and no. I mean, right, so basically we have this uh, bundle of tools, and the tools could allow transformative changes. They and, and no one of these in and of itself is the answer, but together they are. So the employee on the street has more information than he or she's ever had before, not just uh, information in a tablet instead of in a piece of, on a piece of paper, but are pieces of paper, but decision support tools that will help him or her ask the right questions about how to intervene in the life of a child who is uh, potentially abused, how to make a decision about what data is available to their family. Um, there's predictive analytics that will suggest the answer to that child welfare worker or fill-in-the-blank worker. We can uh, uh, then connect that information uh, in a way that helps us evaluate the providers for the outcomes of services they provide. So the employee has more information. Then you go, well, the family has more information and friends in their community have more information. So let's mine the social media. Let's engage the community, maybe not in the life of that particular foster child, but maybe in kind of what the recreational opportunities are, what's happening in that community, what would the options be? So you have a engaged community, you have a more informed citizen, and then you have the tools that can be used in the leadership structure to predictive analytics and mine the data. So it's coming together, everybody's a lot smarter and better. So that seems very exciting. I imagine to some people listening to that, uh, they would have natural privacy concerns right. as well. How, how do governments address that yeah. part of things? Well, I think the privacy issue is an important issue, and people need to be really aware of it. I think the worst thing we could do 
is uh, choose either one of what would appear to be polar opposites. One is a lot of value-driven with no privacy restrictions. The other is total privacy restrictions and no values. The question mm -hmm. is kind of how you put those together. And I think, uh, first of all, a, a lot of information, inter, uh, Internet of Things information, sensor technology, a lot of the information can be anonymized, right? We don't need to know who the person is who drove uh, through that intersection. We just need to know that X cars per hour went through that intersection. So, mm -hmm. so that's one answer. Then the answer for the abused child is, well, there are very few people who have responsibility for delivering public uh, services to that family. That person needs access to information to make an important decision. And then third, the cities and states need to have policies. They need to have explicit policies on privacy. Who can see information? How long will the information be kept? What information is anonymized? How will we do kind of forensics to see if anybody's abusing the system? So, and what are the punishments for that? So I think mm -hmm. uh, privacy is a big issue, not one that should thwart us, but one that should give us a, a sufficient concern that we have a explicit policy. Are there specific governments, uh, certain municipalities that have done this better than others, have kind of rode this wave of technology? Well, I think probably the uh, lead right now in the country is Chicago. Chicago is uh, modernizing its call center called a 311 center to allow for a lot more than phone calls, like the interaction of a, of a civic platform. Mm -hmm. It's got a predictive analytics based in part on the terrific work done by the CIO's office, as well as a grant from Bloomberg Philanthropies. It's got uh, community trust and foundation money that's funding a very um, well-situated uh, nonprofit uh, called Smart Chicago that that links the city and the community groups with the data and, and the tools that are necessary. So I think Chicago is probably the model to watch. So as a citizen of one of these cities, what kind of thing, how, how are you going to actually see the changes that this kind of governance brings about? Well, we're talking in Boston today, obviously, sure. and my guess is that today is also a typical Boston weather day. That's a blizzard for our blizzard, listeners. <laughs> yes. And uh, there's a lot of people, my guess is, that are using their apps to talk to their city and talk about uh, roads not plowed or services that are needed. And they're in those, those connections to the city by iPhone, Android app are a more efficient way to do it. They're getting responsive information. They're going to find out which roads are closed more quickly. They eventually, in a year or two from now, might receive personalized information. <clears throat> so, um, you know, in the end, um, the ability of a citizen to communicate uh, with less transaction pain uh, with uh, with City Hall is going to be remarkably better. I was actually, I, I just just a couple days ago, took a photo with the Boston Citizens Connect app and <laughs> reported a unshoveled sidewalk. It's an excellent uh, service to have. Now, we're talking about cities right now, and this is kind of, it's it seems to be focused on that. But you also mentioned state governments. Is this something that can be applied outside of just urban areas? Yeah, I think maybe state governments even more than cities. Uh, state governments tend to be more disparate, right? They have multiple agencies. They're not very well connected. <clears throat> Often they touch a lot of the same communities with different services. They have actually more money than cities generally do to uh, organize some of these services. Mm -hmm. They can organize analytics in a way that actually helps cities as well as help the citizens of the states, because like, many people are obviously in both categories. <clears throat> Indiana has set up a data analytics center. Um, under uh, its CIO, a fellow named Paul Baltzell, uh, took on infant mortality as their first uh, use case, and uh, they'll be providing an interesting example. 
What about the cost of, of doing this? It, does it pay for itself in the end because you have a more efficient government in the end? Or Right. Well, some of the things one can do in the, in the examples we talked about in the book, Responsive City, are, are relatively inexpensive. They're a really clever person using data, uh, using some uh, open source tools, and coming up with some insights. Mm-hmm. Other things have a little bit more upfront cost, um, but even that is possibly offset by improvements in cloud computing, which allow you to buy just as much as you need. I think probably the biggest issue, though, will be, because um, in the data, as an aside, in the work we talk about in the book, we're talking about people mining data, not integrating huge databases. I mean, a government, neither government nor private sector is very good at putting together mammoth systems into one. Mm-hmm. But now you can, you can mine that data fairly simply. Well, the cost then is really the cost of the data scientist. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be, I think, one of the most prohibitive issues with respect to uh, government's uh, adventures into the data world. What role does leadership play in actually implementing all this? Well, government's made up of a lot of really well-intentioned people operating with pretty severe blinders on, right? They can't see another agency. They often can't look up in their hierarchy or down in their bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. And if you want people to be creative and innovative, then they have to be able to have the insights from data. They have to be able to, to see what other agencies are doing. They have to learn more about data and, and on an enterprise level. So that takes a leader. Somebody says, we are going to cooperate. We are going to negotiate the data uh, sharing rules. So we're not going to have you know every agency saying, I c- you can't get to my data. We're going to look at, uh, we're going to say to our uh, agency heads, uh, we have to do things smarter and better. And that means we have to be able to figure out where we can make a difference and where we can't. So instead of making a thousand identical widgets, you know, maybe some people don't need the widget at all. Some people need widgets twice as big. We're going to use data to figure that out. So it seems like uh, this feels almost inevitable, the use of technology in making government better. Uh, is it actually inevitable? Is this something that you're seeing actually, you know, go go across municipalities around the world and be, be uh, using this data effectively? Well, I think it's inevitable. Uh, it's been slow in the take-up, even though the technology tools have improved so quickly. Mm-hmm. I think what, though, is not inevitable is well-informed public policy that uses the available data to change the way we deliver public goods, right? So the technology is inevitably there. The value of its use is up to the next set of public leaders. Mm-hmm. And Chicago is a good example. Are there other communities that have implemented? Well, Boston's a good example. Chicago's a good example. New York's a good example. Singapore's a good example. Barcelona's mm-hmm. a good example. Uh, uh, Rio and Sao Paulo have done some pretty impressive stuff. Are uh, there specific things about those communities that lend themselves towards that? Or is, does it come back to the leadership, leadership. like you're saying? Yeah. Leadership. Yeah. Well, Professor Stephen Goldsmith, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast, produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Follow us on Twitter at PolicyCast.